I'm Chris Martin, and this is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. My guest today is Jessica Good. She's a social psychologist at Davidson College in North Carolina. She received her PhD in social psychology from Rutgers University in 2011 and has taught at Davidson since then. Her research focuses on stereotyping and discrimination. I invited her to the show to talk about her new paper on multiculturalism, which is a contentious topic in the political world and academia. Her new paper is called Valuing Differences and Reinforcing Them. Multiculturalism Increases Race Essentialism. Her co-authors on this paper are Lee Wilton, who's the first author at Skidmore College, and Evan Apfelbaum. The paper itself is not in the public domain, but there's an article in Pacific Standard that summarizes the paper, and you can find a link to that article in the show notes. Hi, Jess. Good morning. How are things at Davidson? They're good. It's a, it's a little rainy this morning, but um, should be shaping up to be a nice day. How about you? Things are good here. Might be a little rainy today. I still remember my summers at Davidson. I spent two summers there working at the mm-hmm. library, made good friends with the mosquitoes. <laughs> yes, it's, it's unescapable. So we're here to talk about your new paper about multiculturalism and its upsides and downsides. For a lay audience, can you describe multiculturalism and two ideologies that people often contrast it with, colorblindness and polyculturalism? Sure. So so there's a long history associated with these ideologies, but kind of in a nutshell, multiculturalism is the idea that in, in diverse interactions, we should um, emphasize and find value in the different social groups that people bring to the table. So, so sometimes multiculturalism is operationalized as kind of a, a valuing differences or emphasizing differences approach. And it's contrasted with colorblindness, um, which I think people tend to be a little more familiar with. But, but colorblindness is the idea that we should um, not emphasize differences. And in contrast, think about similarities um, between people, treat people as sort of exactly the same, exactly equal, be blind to the differences uh, between individuals. And those two have really received the bulk of the attention in the psychological literature. In in, um, other disciplines, polyculturalism has had greater um, attention paid to it, but it's the idea that that we should think um, about interconnections between racial groups. So kind of historical and um, cultural ways that social groups overlap and have influenced each other. So emphasizing kind of the lack of pure social groups. So would it be fair to say multiculturalism tends to conceive of cultures as sort of like unique spices in a spice rack where each spice is unique and can't be replaced by something else, but also is uh is valuable in itself. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy that that multiculturalism says, "Hey, um, my group is different from your group, and yet together we can um, create something something special, you know, particularly tasty, perhaps that that uh, that is um, better than we could do alone." So now, with this particular paper, you were tackling the one downside of multiculturalism. Can you talk about what inspired the study? Those of us who do work in this area are aware that although overall the bulk of the literature suggests that multiculturalism is is sort of the um, better, superior um, ideology, tends to lead to more positive outcomes, it's not without some negative outcomes as well. And um, we had all been doing research on diversity philosophies kind of independently and came together to think about um, 
what are some possible negative consequences of multiculturalism? Because the bulk of the literature suggests this is the preferred ideology over colorblindness in particular, I'd say. Uh, and so we started thinking about uh, race essentialism as a potential negative outcome. And, and we are not the first to, to think about this idea, but, but we didn't find that it had been tested before in the, in the literature. So race essentialism is the idea or the belief that racial differences are um, are innate, uh, immutable. So our, our, our racial category memberships um, tell us um, important information about about people in those categories. Uh, and essentialism is associated with negative outcomes like increased um, explicit and implicit racial bias and stereotyping. And so at first glance, it doesn't seem like race essentialism, which overall people would consider negative, would be associated with multiculturalism, which people tend to consider positive. Um, but as we started thinking about the ways in which multiculturalism emphasizes um, differences between people, so it says, well, in order to value these differences between racial groups, we have to emphasize that these differences do exist, um, that it might carry with it this belief in kind of the inherent or essential qualities of racial group membership. And so that's what, what got us started in testing this idea. And you contrasted it with colorblindness, is that correct? Correct, yep. Okay, and so with colorblindness, you found that people had lower scores on racial essentialism, and that was measured with items like people who were born of one race generally cannot change the race they're in, or people who are one race will always be that race. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So so the flip side of essentialism would be understanding kind of the social constructionism of, of race. Okay. So the message behind this paper seems to be that there really is no one philosophy or one ideology that works in all situations, but the answer is moderated. Is there other research going on about what the moderators are? Yes. So um, so sometimes a moderator might be context. Um, you could think about situations in which um, a blind policy might be preferred. So this is you know going kind of beyond the research, but think about a gender blind policy. Well, in hiring, that might be a positive thing, but in healthcare might be a negative thing, right? So, so certain situational contexts can influence whether a colorblind or a multicultural approach might be best. And then also our, our social group membership. So there's work finding that um, uh, multiculturalism might be most um, effective for racial minority participants and white participants who are already low in racial bias, but it can backfire with white participants who are high in racial bias, where they're going to um, reject that view and, um, and, and actually exhibit higher, um, higher bias in response. Okay. Now, have people tried to instantiate these ideologies and corporations and also found similar effects? In other words, your experiment was in the lab, but mm -hmm. is there any generalizable evidence that this might be happening in the world? So there is some work, um, and, and this is extending a little bit beyond mine, but this is there's some work by Evan, um, looking at the types of diversity statements that corporations will, will sort of publicly post. Um, and, and so he's looking at kind of um, the way that, um, I believe he's looking at law firms and, and to the extent that they emphasize multiculturalism or, or colorblindness. And when they emphasize uh, multiculturalism, they tend to have lower attrition among uh, white women, but emphasizing um, colorblindness tends to have lower attrition among um, people of color. 
So is Evan also studying polyculturalism or are any of your colleagues looking into that and whether the idea that cultures influence each other so there's no such thing as one pure culture, something in opposition to the Spicer Act metaphor, uh, whether that ideology is being instantiated anywhere by any kind of corporation? You know, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know whether Evan's working on that. I am not directly working on polyculturalism. And I think um, one of the challenges has to do with, with realistically implementing polyculturalism in a corporate or educational setting. So it's, it's often talked about in an educational setting. And you could see how in history curriculum, art, English, things like that, it, it would fit really well to talk about kind of historical interconnections between um, racial groups and cultural groups and um, how how those groups have influenced each other over time. It's a little more challenging to think about how polyculturalism would be implemented easily in, in a corporate or educational setting uh, beyond those those sort of typical disciplines. So for example, I have an NSF grant right now where I'm looking at uh, the way instructors use either a colorblind or multicultural philosophy in science and math classrooms and how that impacts the performance of women and underrepresented minorities in STEM. Um, and one of the, the uh, pieces of feedback that I get from instructors a lot is that in, in teaching a science course, they say, well, how am I going to talk about diversity at all? It's just chemistry or it's just physics, right? There's no, there's no opening to talk about social group memberships and representation and historical overlap and, and things like that. So, so I, I don't know of work that's happening um, right now on polyculturalism. That doesn't mean it's not, not happening, but I'm not aware of it. And I think part of it has to do with just kind of feasibility of implementing that in kind of a, a quick intervention, either educationally or, or in a corporate setting. I've seen something similar. When you read papers on polyculturalism, you often find examples from the world of the arts, mm -hmm. dance, music, painting, that sort of thing. Or you find examples related to food and cuisine. Mm -hmm. But it's often hard to find examples related to science and engineering. And I'm sure they're out there somewhere, mm -hmm. but it is pretty hard. Absolutely. And and some of the, the work on polyculturalism, you, you, could, you could think about positive uh, prior interactions and connections between racial and cultural groups. And you can certainly think of some negative prior interactions and, and connections as well. And um, to my understanding, whether or not it's necessary, you know, it's sort of superficial to only talk about positive, um, you know, historical connections. So is it sufficient to balance positive and negative? Or if we only highlight negative uh, prior interactions and connections, is that going to still create the same positive outcomes that we would hope to find with polyculturalism? There's one downside that you just mentioned about polyculturalism, which is that it, you might have to gloss over the negative interactions. Are there any other downsides to it? Is there any situation where it's actually worse than multiculturalism or colorblindness? I don't know. And I would say um, that that's probably because the work in the psychological literature comparing polyculturalism to multiculturalism and colorblindness is, is really not there yet. The bulk of the work really compares colorblindness and multiculturalism. Um, they're, they're definitely, so, so I've just submitted a paper actually um, with a, a colleague of mine, Kim Bourne, where we're looking at how positivity influences the way that multiculturalism and colorblindness are, are received. So one of the most common uh, ways that these two diversity philosophies are operationalized is with kind of these essays that participants read as, as they did in the paper that that we're talking about today. Um, 
And the multicultural essay tends to be rated more positively than the colorblind essay. And so, so Kim and I have been um, conducting a series of studies where we're looking at whether um, when diversity philosophy or ideology is confounded with positivity, does that influence the overall results that we might get um, when exposing people to those two diversity philosophies? And we find that in, in a lot of literature, multiculturalism is inherently viewed as more positive than colorblindness. And so um, that may or may not you know, explain why multiculturalism tends to have more positive effects in terms of reducing bias and, and greater engagement. Tell me a bit about your future research on these ideologies. So right now, um, I'm about to launch some some, uh, some data collection where we are recruiting uh, students from across the country. So inter, uh, sorry, entering college uh, first year students, and we're having them take an online um, science and math course. So chemistry, physics, math, uh, and the instructor is will espouse either a colorblind or a multicultural classroom management policy. So in thinking about how students should interact with each other in their classroom, they will promote similarities or promote differences, uh, and then students will proceed to take an online course uh, and complete a comprehension test and measures of belonging, validation, um, perceived bias of the instructor. Uh, and, and the goal is to see whether instructors can, you know, make make small changes to the way that they they explicitly talk about diversity in their classroom that might promote greater feelings of belonging for underrepresented students and whether that might in turn lead to greater persistence and greater performance in STEM classes. And who are you collaborating with on that study? So that is part of uh, an NSF grant that I have right now. And, and I've been fortunate to involve several undergraduate students in my work. So I'm, you know, as you know, as a graduate of Davidson, it's an undergraduate institution. And so the focus is really on involving students in the research process and, and showing them, you know, kind of firsthand what it means to be a psychologist, to be a researcher. And so um, right now I have uh, a lab manager, Kim Bourne, who's working with me, as well as a handful of students who've been ongoing on the project. Well, before we jump to a different topic, how are you measuring belonging? Is it mostly through self-report scales? In this instance, it's self-report. Um, so I'm trying to get a nationally representative sample of students. Um, again, um, being at Davidson, I'm in a small town in North Carolina, and so I don't have access to in-person a lot of a lot of um, entering college students. So I, I'm recruiting online, which means I need to use kind of self-report for belonging at this point. Now, apart from the NSF grant, do you have any other projects in the works? So, so apart from work on diversity philosophies, I do work on uh, confronting. Uh, and so um, I've been working with uh, Julie Wadzicka and, uh, and Kim Bourne. We've been looking at um, what people want to get out of an interaction when they confront racism or sexism, and then um, what they do get out of the interaction. So we've been, um, at this point, surveying people to find out, hey, when you have confronted or when you've personally been confronted, how um, did you respond? How did you want the other person to respond? Is there a match there in terms of, you know, I, I hoped to get this outcome and this is the outcome that I received? or I wanted to respond to being confronted this way, but here's how I actually did respond. So um, there hasn't been a lot of work on how people respond to being confronted, and that's kind of the direction that we're exploring right now. Is there some kind of typology of confrontation strategies out there? So you can look at a, confront, uh, a particular type of confrontation and say, okay, that's type A, 
type B? I would not say that there's consensus on a particular typology. I mean, certain researchers have, have you know used various coding strategies when when looking at their data, but I wouldn't say there's kind of a, a widely accepted typology. Um, and and even in terms of what constitutes a confrontation um, in in experimental research, looking at you know. Um, uh, evaluating confronters, things like that. A confrontation is usually a pretty explicit verbal response of saying you know, that's racist or that's sexist or you know that's inappropriate, something like that. But in practice, people might use much more subtle confrontation strategies to try to minimize you know embarrassment or conflict or or um, other kind of interpersonal. Um, you know, negative outcomes, and so, so I don't even know that there's consensus about what would necessarily constitute a confrontation. I think people define that pretty differently. Hmm. This reminds me of Mike McCullough's work on uh, Mike McCullough and Everett Worthington's work. Everett is at VCU. I'm not sure where Mike is, but they do work on forgiveness and relationship maintenance and why some people forgive and why some people try to enact revenge. And it often has to do with how long you want the relationship to last or whether you're invested in the relationship. So I can imagine that if people are very invested in a relationship and it's a small infraction, they might not confront at all. Whereas if it's moderate to large, but they're invested in it and they still want to be friends with the person, they do confront. But um, at that point, it varies a bit depending on their personal style and whether they're willing to end the relationship completely. Right. Right. So how severe the offense is, whether this is, you know, in the workplace or within your family, your, your interpersonal relationships, whether you're going to have to continue to see that person and, or, or want to, you know, to interact with that person long term, or whether this is just, you know, a one-off comment that, that someone on the street made to, you're going to react pretty differently to that. Do you have some sense of how often these confrontations are even happening in the real world? Uh, less often than they happen in the lab. So there's definitely work <laughs> suggesting that people in in sort of scenario studies, um, people overestimate their likelihood of confronting in comparison to if you actually put them in that situation, they're much less likely to confront. And, and confronting rates tend to be low when we're talking about um, uh, research that, that directly puts people in a racist or sexist situation and when we're talking about retrospective research that asks people to kind of recall their past experiences of racism or sexism and what they did, confronting rates tend to be low. I think there might be some interesting cross-cultural variation here. I'm from India, and in India, there's more power distance. So it's actually easier for a boss to confront their employees, mm -hmm. uh, probably in other countries too. So if you do have a boss who's sensitive to these issues they're probably less likely to suppress their emotions and say, well, this is an egalitarian work environment. Maybe I shouldn't step on that person's toes. So mm -hmm. even though power distance has some downsides, I think one of the upsides, it's kind of like the army where uh, if the people at the top do have good values, they can be very direct about enforcing those values. Yes. In fact, uh, Leslie Ashburnardo has some work looking at power differentials in the workplace. And so um, the, the corollary to what you just said, so employees are less likely to confront their boss, someone who has power over them for doing something um, inappropriate, um, as opposed to confronting a coworker or someone at their same level. So, so if you've got um, a boss with, with great values, uh, they might be able to, you know, confront employees working under them, which would be great. But if you've got a boss that is doing, um, uh, you know, inappropriate uh, activities or, or making, you know, offensive statements, their employees probably feel less comfortable confronting that person. 
And I think the words you use might matter too, because the word racist has a very strong stigma mm-hmm. associated with it. I think um, John McWhorter said, like in this day and age, calling someone a racist is like calling them a child molester. It's just a very mm-hmm. strong accusation. I can imagine that sometimes actually not using the word racist might be more effective. Do you see any, um, is there any research supporting that idea? So um, so Julie Wadzicka, um, she's at Washington University. She has some work um, recently that that's that she's got that's um, putting people into a situation where um, a, a confederate says something sexist and, and looks to see how they respond. And no one said, they anticipated they would say like that's sexist, but no one actually did label it as sexism. Instead, they said, oh, that's interesting that you mentioned gender and, and kind of left it there, right? Mm. So they sort of brought it up. But didn't explicitly label it or or label the person um, certainly as as sexist. So I think there are ways that people try to kind of subtly confront or emphasize that they don't necessarily agree with what was just said, or they want that person to check their behavior a bit without without yeah labeling someone because that can come off uh, that can make someone really defensive. If someone says you're sexist or you're racist, immediately you're going to put up you know this wall um, in in defense. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a bit of relationship research where stonewalling is a problem. It's one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as John Gottman <laughs> calls it. So you can, uh, I guess if you call someone racist, that could initiate stonewalling on the other person's mm-hmm. side, and then you have no progress there. Right. So, yeah, that sounds like interesting yeah. research. Uh, I mean, I'm doing some research myself on inclusion and diversity, so I've been looking into oh, using, um, looking into using uh, work from John Gottman to see if that can help people in dyadic interactions, working at dyads and groups and classes. And so maybe for dyads, some of that, some of that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of polyculturalism, would you say it's, you said it's not researched that much in social psych and what disciplines are people paying a lot of attention to it? It has been written about more within educational contexts and thinking about kind of incorporating cultural curriculum into schools. Um, It's been written in sort of uh, history or sociology. Uh, I think the difficulty of cleanly and quickly instituting some kind of polycultural intervention is what has led it to not take hold within social psych as as clearly. But this could be my own ignorance as well of, of the research that's going on and hasn't come out yet looking at polyculturalism. Uh, and so perhaps, you know, as people are getting a more nuanced understanding of multiculturalism and colorblindness, um, that people will start to investigate polyculturalism being to some extent a blend of the two. Is there any other uh, research project in the works apart from the two you've already talked about that you'd like to talk about? No, I mean at the moment I'm in I'm in year two of this grant, and so that tends to be my biggest focus uh, is is trying to investigate how people are talking about diversity in the classroom and whether that has any impact on students, um, you know, uh, feelings of belonging, their retention in STEM, whether there's a way that we could use what we know about diversity philosophies to help instructors who who are well intentioned, um, who want to promote, you know, a, a a environment in their classroom that that uh, facilitates you know success for all students. Um, how we could help them think about ways to signal inclusivity, um, signal belonging for their students who might be feeling threatened in those contexts. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it.
You can find out more about Jess at our Davidson College homepage, and you can reach her by email at jegood at davidson.edu. My next guest on the show is Rob Quinn. He's the executive director of Scholars at Risk. In September, I'll have two episodes, one with Jason Stanley about his new book on fascism, and another with John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff about their new book, The Coddling of the American Mind. This show was produced by Heterodox Academy. You can learn more about us at heterodoxacademy.org, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is HDX Academy. Thanks for listening.